Samuel chapter 11, the first five verses. You can follow along. Uh, words are on the screen, and uh, we're familiar with this uh, this very uh, interesting story from Scripture. So let me read these five verses. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And we're going to delve into that story a little further in just a little bit. So let's pray and ask God to uh, open up our hearts to his word this morning. Lord, um, thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We, we do pray that, as we've just sung, that all that takes place today would have the goal of bringing honor and glory to you. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the song that we heard, that your, uh, someday your kingdom is coming, and that you uh, have promised that just as you came the first time, you're going to come again sometime. And so we wait with expectant hearts for uh, your return. Lord, in the meantime, may we uh, live uh, with purpose and passion for you. And now, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to uh, your truth for us this morning, and we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're on message number 14 in the life of David, and uh, you might be asking, like, why are there so many messages on the life of David? The reason is there's more written about David than any other character in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in the Bible that cover the life of David. David's referred to in the New Testament 59 times, and so there is a wealth of material on the life of David, and so uh, we've been journeying through David's life And we've already seen him being anointed three times as king. Once a private anointing when he was a teenager uh, with Samuel. And then when he was 30, he was anointed as king over Judah. And then when he was 37, seven years later, he was finally anointed as king over all of Israel. And so as we're progressing through David's life, when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is probably 50 years old. And David's been been king for about 20 years. He's about halfway through his reign. As we looked last Sunday, we saw a highlight in David's life. David fulfilled a promise, a commitment that he had made to his best friend Jonathan, his father-in-law Saul, that if there was any remaining relatives in their family, that David would care for him. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, David asks the question, are there any relatives of Saul left? And uh, he finds out through Saul's former servant, a man by the name of Ziba, that there's one left. He's a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. And as we looked at last week, Uh, David very intentionally brings Mephibosheth uh, to the palace and he basically says, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. 
and we're going to take care of you and all of your offspring. And we see David modeling this Old Testament Hebrew word that's found hundreds of times, a hesed. We said it's, it's translated with many different words in the Old Testament. That's because we can't really get a handle on it with just one word. Most often translated loving kindness. David is showing mercy, grace, loving kindness to other people. And actually, the scriptures tell us that's what he wants us to do as well, uh, to show, be a conduit of his mercy and grace and kindness, undeserved favor to other people that he brings into our life. Well, now we're going to come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we go from one of the highlights in David's life to one of the, the valleys in, in David's life. And um, so we're going to um, look at what's David's greatest failure. And um, here's what Chuck Swindoll says in his commentary about Second Samuel chapter 11. There is not a person I know who would want to have their failures and vices recorded for all generations to read and discuss and write books on. No sin except the original sin of Adam and Eve has received more talk, more press, more ink than the sin of David with Bathsheba. Yes, David sinned, but his sin was no greater than your sin or mine. Ours simply have not been recorded for all to read. None of us here would want our life uh, an open book for everyone to read. And yet, that's what the scriptures do with, with David. And so we're going to look at uh, this, this story that most of us are familiar with. And uh, let's look at the setting here, Second Samuel chapter 11, the setting. Uh, we just read the verses, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. And so apparently in the Middle East, there was a certain period of time which was a time to go fight. And it was the spring, and part of that was because of the weather. The weather was more uh, acclimated to, uh, to, to fighting, to battles. Uh, the roads were dry, making travel easier for troop movement, supply wagons, chariots. And so spring was the time when you went off to war. And the chapter opens up in this manner. that says that David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But here's our key phrase, but David remained in Jerusalem. For some reason, it was very normal and natural because the king was the commander-in-chief that the king would lead the armies in battle. David was a great warrior. Remember the song they sang about him? Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his ten thousands. And yet, for some reason, David decides not to go into battle. Maybe David's having a midlife crisis. Maybe David's tired. Maybe David wants just to relax and says he deserves some time off. But for whatever reason, David stays in Jerusalem rather than going out to battle. And then as we read uh, the story... Um, we discover what happens, and the second point is the sensual sight. Uh, verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. Now some context here, that most Palestinian homes in that day were built with a flat roof, 
and it was used as living space. David's palace was built on the highest peak in Jerusalem. So if David would walk out on his uh, rooftop uh, at some point in time, and, and it happened to be in the evening time here, he would have a panoramic view of all of Jerusalem. And David perhaps can't sleep one night, and he's out there, and it says that he is uh, walking around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The Bible says she was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. Now David begins this downward spiral, and... um, this chapter and story could have had a totally different ending if the text would have said David saw a very beautiful woman bathing and he went right back into his home and into his palace. And that would have been the end of the story. But David, David does not do that. It says David sent someone to find out about her. Now, if you take time to read Second Samuel chapter 11 you'll discover the word sent or send is found 10 times in 2 Samuel 11. And so David is a man in authority and he is uh, feeling large and in charge. Uh, Verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. The woman sent word to David Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. Uh, The king sent a gift with Uriah, verse 8. Verse 11, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. It's found in verse 18, 10 times. Uh, David is, is sending. We read what happens next, verses 3 through 5 the sexual encounter, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was one of David's mighty warriors. Bathsheba was also the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who is one of David's closest advisors. And she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was also one of David's mighty warriors. It's almost as if this messenger is coming back to David and saying, her name's Bathsheba, but she's the daughter of Eliam, and she is the wife of Uriah. David, she is a married woman. And David blows right past that. And so it says, David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her, and then she went back home. Verse 5, the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Well, that leads to the rest of the chapter Because now David moves into cover-up mode. And any point in this story, David could have changed his mind and repented and taken an off-ramp. But David goes into cover-up mode. He devises a secret plan. 
And we see there's three parts to the plan. The first who don't succeed, the last one does. Let's look at plan A, verses 6 through 11. So David sent this word to Joab, his commander-in-chief, who's out fighting the battle. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Now that's an unusual request. To, they're in the middle of battle, and David says, I want you to bring Uriah back home from the battlefield. But David's the king, Joab, Joab is under David, and he's following, he's following orders. And Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, David is saying to Uriah, I want you to go back home. I want you to take some R&R, and I want you to spend time with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Notice the dedication of Uriah here, the soldier in battle. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace. He went home, but he didn't stay there. He came back and he slept at the, the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his own house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? So plan A doesn't work. David's trying to cover his tracks because if Uriah goes home and he sleeps with Bathsheba, then nobody will know who this child is. David's tracks will be covered. So David has to go to plan B, cover up plan B, and it's found in um, verse 11, 12, and 13. Uriah said, David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Apparently he didn't even go to his house. I misspoke earlier. As surely as you live, I will, do not such, I will do not such a thing. Here's the commitment of a soldier, a Uriah, a Uriah, who is not even an Israelite. He's from Hittite. He's, he's a, a convert to Judaism. And he's so dedicated, he says, I, I can't do that while the guys are, are in battle. So David goes to plan B. Verse 12, David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. So David uh, just gives him enough alcohol where now uh, Uriah is, is in a state of, of drunkenness. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. And so David's cover-up plan number two, plan B, doesn't work. And so David goes to cover-up plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So he's sending him back to the battlefield. He writes a letter to the commander-in-chief in the battlefield, Joab, and Uriah is carrying this letter to Joab. 
He's carrying his own death sentence. Um, I, I wonder if he had any temptation to, to, to read the letter. Apparently he did not. But here's what the letter said from David to Joab. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So if I can't get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife to cover my tracks, I'm going to send Uriah into the heat of battle. I'm going to have the soldiers withdraw from him and put him out there on the forefront of the lines. And hopefully he'll be killed. And that was David's plan C. And that's, and that's what happened. It uh, comes to back to verse 18 where it says, Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that uh, they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thesbed? Why did you get so close to the wall? So why, why were you reckless in your military strategy? If he asked that, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That's what you need to tell David. So the messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him to say, the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open and we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And so there's, uh, there's the cover-up. Plan A didn't work. Bring Uriah home from battle. Have him take some R&R. Plan B didn't work. Get Uriah drunk and have him go sleep with Bathsheba. Plan C put Uriah into the, the heat of the battle and withdraw from him and Uriah will be killed. And that's what happened. And so we read the summary statement. Here's how the chapter ends. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife. And bore him a son. The last verse, or the last sentence in the last verse. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David's happy. He has Bathsheba. It's not like he needed another wife, by the way. He already had several. Perhaps Bathsheba's happy. I mean, she's got this prominent position as the wife of the king. They have a child. And everything seems to be fine. But then the author writes, God is not pleased. 
I tell you, I need to be reminded this morning, and we all need to be reminded of a verse in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, where the author of Hebrews writes this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so God sees everything God knows everything, and the story ends with these words, God is not pleased with David. Now we're going to get into chapter 12 uh, next, next Sunday, and the story turns. Let me just read the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 12. You know, David's been doing some sending. Uh, the word send or sent is 10 times in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's how chapter 12 opens. The Lord sent Nathan to David. <laughs> now, God's doing some sending. And he sends his prophet, his spokesperson, Nathan, to speak with King David. Well, this morning, that's, that's the storyline, a familiar story of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, let's just spend about 15 minutes looking at some life lessons. Uh, what can we learn from this story? And we all need to be reminded of uh, some lessons from Second Samuel chapter 11. And um, here is the first one. Uh, and it's from Proverbs chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 23. Uh, the first life lesson is this. This was written by Solomon. This is the second son of David and Bathsheba who wrote the book of Proverbs. Here's what he says. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, priority number one, Solomon says, I want you to guard your heart, because out of your heart, what? Flows life, and flows the decisions that we make. Jesus reaffirmed that in, in Matthew chapter 15. It's an interesting story where the, the Pharisees are concerned uh, about the disciples of Jesus not following all the religious rules and regulations of Judaism that the Pharisees and Sadducees added to the law. There were 613 of them, by the way, do's and don'ts. And uh, they're asking Jesus, how come your disciples are not following uh, rule number 413b, they're not washing their hands before they eat. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to, to teach them a lesson, and the lesson that he's teaching them is it's not the outside things that corrupt us, but it's what comes from the heart, the inside. Verse 18 of Matthew 15, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. These defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And so here's the first thought that Solomon gives to us, and it's a key verse in Proverbs Above all else, we need to set some protections and guard our hearts. 
Someone has said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Uh, the Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, this is a verse that they, they would quote on a daily basis. It was like their Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to, to Jesus and they said, What's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus reiterated, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you need to love God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole being. And that's what Solomon is saying in Proverbs chapter 4. Above all else, we need to protect our heart, guard our heart. Because our natural drift, our human drift, is not toward God, it's away from God. And so guard your heart and your love for God. This is what uh, was written to the church at Ephesus. A seven letter to the seven churches, the church at Ephesus. Uh, you're doing great. I have all these great things, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You don't love Jesus the way you used to. And that was the, that was the drift of, of, of David in, in David's life. And it's so easy for that to happen in our lives as well. Deuteronomy chapter 17 lays out some very clear instructions that God gave for Israel when they had a, uh, were going to have a king. God wanted to be their king, and they wanted to be like all the other nations. And so finally God relented, and he says, okay, you can have a king, but here's some guidelines for the king when you choose a king. And, and um, they're listed in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, uh, this was the second one. The first one was, don't acquire great numbers of horses. Uh, number two, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And David's already blown past that one. Uh, in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he has uh, seven wives already. So he, he's already disregarded what, what God has said about um, don't take many wives. But then we also go down to verses 18 and 19 when he takes the throne of his kingdom. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and decrees. Don't take many wives. Also, I want you to write God's word down on uh, on papyrus, a piece of paper, and I want you to read it all the days of your life, be in God's word. I don't think David was doing that. If he would have, he would have read Exodus chapter 20. Uh, he would have read the Ten Commandments. Uh, he would have read, don't covet your neighbor's wife. He would have read, uh, do not commit adultery. He would have read, do not commit murder. But David's heart has drifted. So how can we guard our hearts? I really see a parallel here in um, our physical health and our spiritual health. 
Because if you want to have a, a healthy heart, physical heart, uh, there's two key factors that we can control, and it's diet and exercise. You have to be careful what you eat to have a healthy heart. Same is true spiritually. If we want to be healthy spiritually, if we want to guard our hearts, we need to have a steady intake of God's word in our life. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, the psalmist reminds us in the very first psalm, um, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sits in the seat of mockers. There's a progression there, downward progression. Blessed but blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. And so if we want to be healthy spiritually, we have to devise a plan to have a, a regular intake of God's word. And if you're just depending on a sermon once a week, then that's not going to be enough. Uh, we need to be in God's word. Psalm 119 is one of the greatest psalms because um, it's 176 verses long. It's beautiful Hebrew poetry. Every eight verses starts with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the theme of Psalm 119 all through the psalm is God's word. There's eight or nine different uh, words that are translated to represent God's word in Psalm 119. Uh, let me just read a little bit of Psalm 119. Um, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word, God's word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And on and on. Uh, Psalm 119 goes. So a regular uh, intake of God's word is is crucial uh, to our spiritual health. But also exercise. And uh, that's also a key to physical heart strength. I looked up this week. The American Heart Association recommends that adults get at least 150 minutes, two and a half hours, of moderate to intensive aerobic activity or 75 minutes per week of vigorous aerobic activity, or a combination of both. Add moderate to high-intensity muscle-strengthening activities such as resistance or weights at least twice a week. So there's kind of the guidelines. You want to have a healthy heart. you got to be working out, and they're encouraging about two and a half hours a week of moderate to strenuous exercise. That will help you have a healthy heart. Well, in our spiritual lives, not only our, our diet, our intake of God's word, but also um, exercise spiritually is the key to being healthy. First Timothy 4, 7 says, Bodily exercise profits little, but spiritual discipline exercise uh, uh, brings great profit. Train yourself to be godly, 1 Timothy 4, 7. The word there, train, is the word gymnas. It's the word uh, gymnasium, exercise. And so uh, how do we exercise our, our heart spiritually? Well, number one, it's using your spiritual giftedness, which all of us have, at least one spiritual gift, and we need to discover that. We need to 
um, develop that and, and use that giftedness, that will keep our spiritual life healthy. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, uh, talks about loving one another. And so um, spiritual health is in the context of relationships with one another and loving one another. And First Peter 1, 22 says... Now that you purified yourselves by obeying the truth, see that you have sincere love for one another. Love one another deeply from the heart. And so we need to look for ways to show love to others. Like a pastor's appreciation card. Thank you. There are a lot of other ways to do it, aren't there? And... Um, if you're looking for ways to do that within our own church family, I've got a whole list of suggestions for you to, to how we can just practically demonstrate love for one another. And so that's the first application. Boy, we need to, to guard our hearts. The second one is life lesson from Second Samuel 11 is this. The scriptures give consistent advice regarding how to handle sexual temptation. The scriptures give consistent advice how to handle sexual temptation. From Genesis chapter 39, and you know that story, when, when Joseph was in the, the clutches of Mrs. Potiphar, who uh, wanted to, to sleep with him, and she grabs Joseph, and he runs, leaving his coat in her hands. But he runs, he loses his coat, but he maintains his, his integrity. To 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. To Paul's advice to Timothy, who's a young pastor in Ephesus, flee youthful lusts. So the consistent advice, and it's all through Scripture, when it comes to sexual temptation, is that, we need to flee, to run. Someone has said temptations are like birds. You can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. It's true. Well, today, I just want to make this practical for all of us. For you and I, today the temptation is probably not seeing a woman taking a bath on a rooftop in our culture. But I want you to know there's plenty of other uh, temptations. Back when I was a young person and a teenager, um, a complete different world from today, 50 years ago, if you went into a convenience store, um, there were some magazines that they kept behind the counter. And they usually had a, a brown little paper wrap around them. They were Playboy magazines, and um, you could access them, but you had to ask for them. But now we live in a totally different world and different culture. And here's where our temptation comes from, right here. The Internet is a wonderful place for uh, information. It's got a tremendous upside. But smartphones and computers have a tremendous downside. 
and a tremendous temptation. Here's what Chuck Swindoll wrote recently on Insight for Living. The most recent studies available suggest that one out of every two people, I can do my math, that's 50%, sitting in our pews are looking at or could be addicted to internet pornography. Truth be told, that statistic could be higher. It is ruining marriages, destroying relationships, hurting youth, and hurting the body of Christ. You do not need to be reminded that fallen church leaders did not suddenly fall. More often than not, pornography played a role in their downward spiral. I just want to say this morning, this is a huge, huge problem in our culture, and nobody's talking about it. But we need to uh, realize um, the, the subtlety and the temptation of internet pornography. Josh McDonald's research says there are 26 million pornography sites on the World Wide Web. There are 2 billion pages of pornography that are one click away. And so we need to guard our hearts. Let me say that there are a lot of um, good Christian um, websites out there that are there to help with this problem. And it's a huge problem. One that I would suggest is called Covenant Eyes. Uh, Yes, there's a small fee with that, but there are all sorts of resources to help with this problem. The scriptures give consistent advice. Run, forest, run, if I want to quote, uh, quote a famous movie when it comes to sexual temptation. And here's the last one, the third one, and we'll finish with, uh, with this just quickly. Number three, and this is where, where David spiraled downward. We need to confess our sin rather than attempt to cover it up. We need to confess our sin. First John chapter 1 Uh, The great, great verses that John wrote, uh, very familiar. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us struggle with sin. We're all in the same boat. And and John says, if we we say we don't have any sin in our lives, we're, we're deceiving ourselves. We will eventually get to that. Uh, place of glorification when we're in heaven where there'll be no more sin. But the sad news, the bad news, is that as long as we're on planet Earth, as long as we're breathing and living, we will struggle with temptation, we will struggle with sin. So if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But here's, here's the remedy, the prescription. If we confess our sins... Homo legeo, say the same thing that God says about sin. Here's the good news. He is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins. There is not a sin on the planet that God will not forgive. That's good news. And so he simply wants us to to come to him and, and to be honest with him and to confess our sin. And he forgives us and he restores us to fellowship. Now, as we're going to see next week, 
This doesn't negate the consequences of sin. And oh, David's sin was forgiven. But oh, were there some severe consequences. David, the sword will never leave your home, your family line. Uh, David, uh, you, you know how you slept with Bathsheba? Some, someday uh, someone's going to sleep with your wives out in the open in Jerusalem. David, that baby boy that was born, that baby that was born, that baby's going to die. There were severe consequences for David's sin. So we don't need to con- uh, c- cover up. We want to confess our sins. And David wrote some of the greatest confession psalms, two very familiar ones. I would encourage you to read them sometime. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. David, after the prophet Nathan, as we'll see next week, came to him and spoke truth to power, the courage of 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 the prophet Nathan to speak to the, the highest person in, in, uh, in Israel and uh, confront David with his sin. And uh, um, Nathan uh, did that in a very powerful way. And uh, a year after David committed adultery and murder, he confesses his sin. You know what? He goes on to appreciate how... Nathan spoke truth to power. I was going to save this for next week, but I'll share right now. Later on, uh, David has more children. And guess who he uh, names one of his sons after? He names one of his sons Nathan. After the prophet Nathan. And so that's the story of Second Samuel chapter 11. David's greatest failure, but David found grace and mercy and forgiveness. Guard your heart. Flee, run, run, run from sexual temptation. And if you fall, confess, and you will find grace, mercy, and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this reminder from uh, this very familiar story in the Old Testament. A reminder uh, to guard our hearts. And Lord, uh, help us never to make the mistake of thinking that could never happen to me. Because when we think that, we're on the first step on a downward spiral. So help us to guard our hearts. Help us to be in your word on a daily basis. Lord, help us to love others and look for ways to encourage um, other people and love them deeply. Lord, I just uh, thank you for um, your advice in Scripture. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, thank you that there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And Lord, this morning, help us to just express to you uh, how much we love you. And Lord, we'll thank you for your love for us. We love him, we love you because you first loved us. 
Thank you for your sending your son Jesus to be our rescuer, our deliverer, our savior. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 